Thank you, musicians and choir. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> One of the very first lessons that we teach our children... One of the first lessons that maybe you and I were taught ourselves is the lesson to share, right? Share our toys and, you know, all of those things. In life, however, as you grow older, we learn that not everything is meant to be shared. For instance, a unicycle. That's kind of hard. A bite-sized piece of candy doesn't really and not really intended to be shared. We learned also that certain relationships, marriage, no sharing involved there either. See, it's a reason, though, well, well, why? Why is it that in certain areas of life, sharing is a good thing to do, but, but there's, some, there, there's some areas, you know, they're cordoned off, and, and you, no, 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 sharing, sharing just isn't allowed. I think the answer kind of comes with the study of our very first command. You know, we're beginning this series. Last week was an introduction. And today we're looking at command number one. You shall have no other gods. In other words, no sharing allowed. The attention you give to me, God says, you give it only to me reason why that command is so important, and I believe why it comes number one, is because it will be the basis for every other command. If we have hearts and minds that are divided in serving other gods, other things that we uh, assign value to and we worship, we will find failure in all of the other commands. You will find it very difficult to watch your words. You'll find it very difficult to honor the Lord's day. You will find it very difficult to honor your father and mother if you've got a problem with God being first and only in your life. So this morning, we're going to examine why this command, why, why is it so important to have no other gods before Yahweh? Before the Lord. There's a lot of questions to be answered too that this text brings up. And so to, to really begin, uh, uh, first of all, we're just going to begin with prayer. Let's ask God to just anoint this time together in our worship as we look at this first command. Heavenly Father, you first told us, you shall have no other gods before me. And Lord, just in those few short words, um, it, it means a lot. And there's a lot of information bound up within that phrase. God, as best as humanly possible, in, in about 30, 40 minutes or so, I've got to unpack it and, and let's examine it together as a congregation. Then we're going to put it all back together in a way that, that, that will challenge our hearts and lives and help us to please you more. And so God, I, I can't do this apart from you. Um, matter of fact, it's not even about me at all. It's all about you. So, Father, we, we, we just ask, God, that you take charge of this service. And, and that through just my speaking, Lord, there'll be some words that, that will challenge and, and maybe even refresh the hearts of those here. But most importantly, God, we want you to be exalted. We want you to be blessed at the reading of your word and the preaching of this sermon. 
In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, like every verse of Scripture in the Bible, context is key. So let's talk about the context of this verse. You shall have no other gods before me. What's the context? Remember, this is Exodus. Exodus, you know, you're leaving something. Israel has now left Egyptian captivity. We're now just a few chapters away from the crossing of the Red Sea. And but while they were in uh, Egyptian captivity, they were not only under the bonds of Egypt, but also under the influence of Egyptian culture. There's something interesting about Egyptian culture. In that day, in Egyptian culture, and also other cultures present today, there was practiced what we call polytheism. Polytheism. Now, polytheism teaches that you can be devoted to multiple gods at the exact same time. In other words, there's a God for the sun, a God for the moon, a goddess for love, a God for this, a God for the dirt, a God for, a God for everything. And, and your job is going to be to make all of those gods happy. Now, you talk about a full-time job. I, it's like the, the proverbial spinning plate. You're, you're just bouncing around from one God to the next, and you're trying to serve them all at one time. Now, aside from the fact that that just is not a true worldview, that would be tiresome, wouldn't it? And, and, and it seems to me that wouldn't other gods get jealous? I mean, if, if I were like the God of something, I'd get mad if you go over here for a little while. You know, say I was the God of the sun. Don't, don't spend time with the God of the moon. I want you to spend time with me. Right? And if you were the God of something, it just seems like it does not work. And, and if we were trying to worship in that way, we'd get tired. Furthermore, how do you know everybody's happy? I mean, there's all sorts of questions that come up with, with this right here. Well, the problem is Israel is in the middle of this culture, and they got caught up in it. And they started doing, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. They started doing as the Egyptians. The prophet Ezekiel warns about this, the, the, all this stuff and, and actually records God's interaction with Israel during this time. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 7, God told them, Each of you, get rid of the vile images that you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But he lamented, they rebelled against me, and he would not listen. And they would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So this first command, if we look at it in one light, it's actually going to be a relief. The Christian God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's only one. You don't have to worry about other deities, making them happy. You don't have to wor- worry about the worship of other things and, and whether or not they're going to supply what you're... And think about it. Polytheism was based upon you getting something. I'm going to worship the God of sun so I can have more sunlight. We've had too much rain. I'm going to worship you know, the, the, the God of, of love or the goddess of love because I haven't had enough of that in my life lately. It's always trying to fill in a gap that only a one true living Almighty, all-knowing, and all-loving, all-sufficient God could ever deliver. 
And so Israel got got caught up in this. They were they were in the midst of uh, of this you know this, this lifestyle. God called them out, but not only did He call them out and give them freedom, He said, "You're going to worship Me." It lets me know, and it reminds us, especially this weekend, when we celebrate freedom. Freedom never is really free. There's always a price tag to it, right? And and, and you know we're going to have to pay that price tag at some points in in our experience as a nation. Uh, as a system of government. And it reminds us, too, that if things are not uh, cared for properly, then we could lose that freedom, could we not? God says, no other gods. In other words, I want you to be, I want to be, rather, the only God. Now, here's, here's the kicker. So far as I know about world history and cultures at that time, these words were foreign to every other culture. There was no such thing as a monotheistic culture. And God, Almighty God, the creator of heavens and earth, was telling Israel, you serve me alone. Now, this whole ideology uh, brings, into, brings us uh, to, uh, uh, to some terminology I want you to be familiar with because it actually is going to bear upon how we interpret and apply this command. Number one, I've already mentioned it, monotheism. What is monotheism? Well, here's the definition. The understanding that there is only one true deity. By deity, we mean God, an, an almighty being. That there's only one true deity in the universe. All other recognized gods are products of our sinful desires. Let me read that again. Monotheism is the understanding that there is only one true deity in the universe, and all other recognized, quote-unquote, gods are products of our sinful desires. Now, is that what God is meaning here? In command number one, is he saying, I want you to have a, you're going to be a monotheistic culture. I am the only true deity. Anything else that you think you're going to worship are products of your sinful desires. Or, as some commentators started to to wonder, is he talking about another concept? And it's called henotheism. Henotheism. Have you ever heard of the word henotheism? Okay, good. I, I was actually quite unfamiliar with it. And uh, as I was, I was reading, I was like, oh yeah, that, that's it. I remember that. Henotheism. Here's what this means. The prohibition of any personal loyalty or relationship with any other deity besides Yahweh. Now, here's the difference between monotheism and henotheism. Monotheism says, God says, listen, I'm it. Anything else in this world is because you created it. Henotheism acknowledges, well, there may be other deities, but God says he only wants you to worship him. Now, this is a concept that's found in, in Hinduism. Okay? Difference between Egyptian culture and Hinduism. Egyptian culture says, yes, we've got all of these gods and they all demand your worship. In Hinduism, which is what's practiced in India, where we go and where we're working with the, with the uh, uh, unengaged, unreached people group, the Tiwa, they follow Hinduism. And here's what Hinduism says. In the millions of gods that are represented in Hinduism, you just pick one and worship it. Whatever one works for you, you pick it and you worship that one alone. And you'll go into the, into the homes and you'll see all these temples. And, and the temples are only dedicated to one of those gods. 
but you go with the next temple over, and there's another God. And so they're worshiping, yes, and they're recognizing that there are other gods. So what is God asking of us? Is He suggesting that He is it? Or is He suggesting that, well, there may be others, but you worship totally on me? What is it? Well, we have the Word of God that helps gives us some answers. In Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. Is no, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. First Corinthians 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and all lowercase letters there, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here's the answer. Technically, no. There's no other gods. Our Lord, that's it. The Word declares it. Prophet Isaiah declared it. Paul declared it in 1 Corinthians. There is no other God, but do we function like that? No. The answer is no. We don't function like that at all. Functionally, like, well, technically, there's no other gods. Functionally, we act like there are many gods in our lives, do we not? Because, listen, by our own sinful desires, we'll give a power to many, many things that's undeserved, unwarranted, and if we're not careful, we begin to worship those things. So the answer to those worldviews that I gave you, henotheism, monotheism, were definitely the Bible. The Bible kind of leans toward the monotheism. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, here's what, here's what, here's what Jesus said. You can't serve God and money. King James uses the word mammon. Same, same, same concept there. Why in the world, of all the things Jesus could have said, you cannot serve or God or... Why don't you could have said like casseroles or something? Why? I mean, why, why that? Because, listen, Jesus sees to the heart of humanity. And He knows that from the very beginning, at the heart of humanity, we are people who want stuff. We are people who are takers. It's our nature. How many times in the course of a conversation, you may be arguing with someone, or you're just trying to make a point, you say, I just want. You're a taker. You just, you just want something. It may not be some kind of possession you can hold with your hands, but Jesus is pointing to something that's beyond the want. It's the means to the wants. It's all of our money. And what money can get. And what money represents. Not that there is anything morally wrong against the paper money that you have in, in your pockets. I mean, even in, in my pocket. Um, let's see what I've got. Well, that's money. Right? In a form of plastic. 
I have these coins here. Every single one saying, God, we trust. But it's kind of funny, though. That very thing that we worship is maybe we're declaring ourselves a lie, right? In God we trust. Do we really? Is there, is there any other competition for our desires, wants, lusts, all of those things? My point here is this. Jesus, the Word of God, absolutely declares there are things in your life that you can have and it will hold more sway over you than even God Himself. And I see this in ministry more times than I've, I've ever cared to count or could ever count. You see, we like to give our allegiance to things that we can see, that are tangible, we can touch, we can feel, we can hear, we can... But with God, God is a spirit, the Bible says. And we think sometimes by kind of putting Him off, maybe we can postpone something. Well, you know, maybe some of you may treat God like debt. Debt is not something you can really be as tangible. You can't feel it, per se. In the news over the past couple of weeks, we've been reading about Greece, and their debt has become very real as a nation, and they're paying for it now. And our devotion to God may be kind of akin to that in, in, some, in, in some kind of uh, crazy way because we may try to ignore it for a while, but, but one day you're going to have to ante up. You'll have to give an account, you see. And so therefore we are constantly reminded by the very first command. God says, you will worship nothing else but me, Period. If that piece of the puzzle is missing, you won't get anything else right at all. I can promise you. I don't care how good your intentions are. I don't care how articulate you are. I don't care about your education. I don't care about your stature in society. I don't care about the influence you have with your friends, your neighbors, or whatever. I don't care what you can do on a Saturday night and then try to make up for it on a Sunday morning. It just will not fly if I am not first in your life, God says. It just is not going to work. Choosing for the Lord means making a choice that excludes every other possibility. How do we know this? Joshua, the great leader of Israel. You read in his book in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, at the very end, what was it that he called Israel to do? You know this text. You've heard of it. Some of you may have it inscripted on something and hanging up in your home. He asked Israel, choose you this day whether you're going to serve the gods that have been in our history and in our past or you're going to choose to serve God alone. And then he gave that well-known statement. You, You know this by heart. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He is recognizing and declaring for us that you too have a choice. It has not been dictated for you to honor command number one. It's not something that's forced on you. You're going to have to choose it. 
You're going to have to choose it by demonstrating in everything else in your life that you're going to reject everything else and serve only God. Now, with a choice, this is important, guys. Please follow me. With a choice comes love. You know why I chose every other girl on the planet except for my wife? Because I loved her more than any other. That's why I chose her. Her life has been so awesome ever since. (laughs) But mine more so. With a choice comes a declaration of love. Listen to me. You can't say you love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're serving other gods. It is impossible for you to do that. It just, it's just not allowed. It's, it's not a part, and it's, it's just not a concept of biblical love. That you can choose God and say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. But how is your life structured? Is your life structured in such a way that it demonstrates that love? What if I told my wife, I love you. I love you so much. But I go play video games. Yeah, honey, I love you. I love you, honey, so much. I'm going to go fishing for a few days. And, um, you know, whatever. And, I, and it, what if I did that over and over with, with other activities and I ignored her? Do you think she would understand that, that my words would be true? That I really loved her? No, why? Because I've got competing desires. There's nothing wrong with playing video games in and of itself. Nothing wrong with going fishing. I love fishing in and of itself. But when all of these events and activities, listen, that are really kind of amoral, they're they're not right or wrong in their existence. But when I fill my life with those to the exclusion of my wife and giving her the attention and the love that she wants, how can I say that I love her? That's why God says you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. Are you going to serve one and and disregard the other? That's why command number one, all the other nine, you can think of it kind of hinging. If you could could take command number one, like put it on a piece of wood and take hinges and attach the other nine commands, they all hinge. They're all attached to that first command. It just will not work unless the Lord is your God. And to love means to stick with your choice too, by the way. Because sometimes the road gets tough, does it not? If I could sit here and tell you, and if I did sit here and tell you that my marriage to my wife has always been rosy, I would be lying. Boy, we've, we've had some tough days. We've had some dark roads that we've had to go down together. But it, it was in those times you had to make a choice. And I'm not alone. You've been down there. If you're married, you've been there. Or maybe you've got a relationship in in, in your life that, you know, hey, our parents. That relationship gets tough. 
I've, I've established a covenant with the person that you don't break. I mean, covenants by their biblical definition are not, not broken. But don't you remember Genesis 12? God covenanted with his people. Abram, I'm going to send you to a, a foreign country, foreign land, foreign people, foreign everything. But out of, out of your obedience to me and your faithfulness to me, I'm going to call out of you a great nation. And your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sand on the sea, stars in the sky. All that. God made a covenant with him and it was unbroken. When we love someone, we say we love someone, we stick with the one we love. So when the going gets tough in our lives and we say, command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes, preacher, I have no other gods before me. When the going gets tough, let me see what happens then. What about when that love is tested? What about when that devotion is tested? It can put stress on you. There's two instances in my life we've had a good deal of stress in my family. Number one, when I was called to ministry. And I knew God calling me to ministry, I needed to go get a good education. And it meant me moving 650 miles away. I'm 21 years old. I grew up in a town smaller than Hilliard. Okay? We, we had no stoplight. Everybody knew everybody else's business, if you know what I mean. That's where I came from. 21 years old, I hadn't seen anything else in my entire life hardly. Maybe the mountains and the beach. That's it. And I'm moving to a city of a half million people, Nashville, Tennessee, country music, USA, whatever they call it. And I grew up listening to that kind of stuff. I thought, man, it's going to be awesome. Mom and daddy, as much as they love me and they love the Lord, started having a problem. Their boy was leaving his hometown. Moving to a place where he ain't got no family. See, it's one thing to say you have no other gods before me, but when you start doing what God calls you to do, it'll test that love. Mom and dad graciously let me go. They gave me no, listen, they did not hinder me whatsoever. And parents, let me tell you something. Okay, I say this because I have lived it. Okay? I have been there. It's okay to send your children outside of Hilliard. If God calls them to the mission field, you better send them. If, they, if God calls them to the, and listen, do more than just be willing. Talk about it with them. It won't do you no harm. What's God calling you to do? So that was road bump number one. Met my wife in college. We got married, tied the knot. We stayed in Nashville for a year, a couple years more. Moved back to North Carolina, 20 minutes from my hometown where I was born and raised. We're in ministry. Everything's going great. People getting saved, baptized, students knowing Jesus, all that, all that good stuff. And then out of the blue... February the 2nd, 2012, Brent Tilly calls me. So, hi, I'm Brent Tilly, chairman of the Pastor Church Committee, First Baptist Church of Boulogne, Hillier, Florida. I said, First Baptist, what, uh, where, what? One conversation led to another, and now mom and daddy, with two of their grandchildren, we got to move 440 miles away. You won't see them like you used to. 
That's another thing that will test your love. You see, my point is, and these stories can be duplicated over and over in your lives. You've got similar stories to tell. Of when God tested your love for Him. to, To see, to really find out if there were no other gods before you. Or before Him, excuse me. Thing is, there will always be those kinds of tests. There will be opportunities in your life when, when, when you're going to have to choose. And your choice is going to be based on who or what you love the most. If you love comfort, if you love familiarity, if you love your home, if you love whatever, it's going to test you. So let me give you some things to help you pass that test very quickly. Number one, you got to understand... I cannot remain neutral in what I worship. Worship by its very nature means no neutrality. You will worship. God did not create you to be neutral. He created you to be attached to something. If, if you want an understanding, a theological and biblical understanding, read cha- Romans chapter 1, especially verses 18 and 19. L- listen to this. Let me turn there real, real, real quickly and read you these two verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen, by their unrighteousness, in other words, by your sin, by your sin you are suppressing the truth. That's what the Bible says. For what can be known about God is plain to you. Have you ever, listen, listen, what you know about God and, and your love for Him, listen, it's right in front of your face. But when you have a divided heart, It'll shroud that part where you can see God and you won't see Him as clearly. It's Romans chapter 1, 18 and 19. My question is, though, when you hear the truth of the Word of God, when you come into contact with that kind of truth, how do you respond? Let me give you Romans, uh, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 9 very quickly. Maybe it's in your notes. I don't know. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Listen to this. Now, this is big. Oh, man. You better pay attention to this one. Listen, listen right here. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who repro- reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. I can't tell you the number of times in, in ministry. I, I've encountered people like that. I didn't know that they were a scoffer, but you try to give them some truth about the Word of God. You try to talk about God's holiness and His expectations of us. And you get spit on. And these are members of the church. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Here you go, verse number 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You know where it begins? You've got to have a good dose of fear of the Lord. Uh, not fear like, like you're, you're afraid of the monster, the boogeyman type, type fear. That's a fear of something that will hurt you. But I have a fear of authority. I have a fear of policemen. Not because of harm, but because of what they represent. They represent law and order. And I want to be in conformity to that. And so, that's kind of like, you know, when you're, what was the first reaction when you see the cop? You look at the accelerator and your speedometer, right? You just want to make sure I'm in conformity. 
Right? That, that kind of fear where we realize God is God. The Lord of the universe. The maker of heavens and earth. Everything he, that, that is, He sustains. Listen, even just by His breath. By His word. So how do you regard truth? That's going to be your first test in, in, in having no other gods before you. Is realizing you just cannot remain neutral in worship. Number two, beware of the influences that lead me to construct and worship other gods. Beware of the influences that lead me to construct and worship other gods. Listen, you are in an environment day in and day out. More so even than me. Your workplace, maybe even family members that are unsaved or at least rebelling against the Lord. You're in those influences that if you're not careful, they will rub off on you. And if you're not careful, you're going to wind up being like them. Your worship is going to start looking like that. Your cares and concerns and, and your reaction to the truth is going to start mimicking that which you are around. That's why it's important. And, and, and listen, and I believe in it, that the church, to a degree, we have to maintain this degree of separation from sin. Because it is an influence. And it will be an influence. You, you Listen, there's an old saying, you lay down with dogs, you're going to wake up with fleas. But in that same breath, it is that same world that we are called to go and be salt and light. My point is, if there are no other gods before Yahweh, and if that's the lifestyle that you live, and you can prove it, and it's seen, and it's evidence day in and day out, you are more able to be salt and light into this world. But if there are other gods competing for your passions, that same, listen, that same life and that same world that you go out into is going to start affecting you. And you can start looking like it, and smelling like it, and living like it, and everything else like it. Because there are other gods competing. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Is that a statement that you can make of yourself right now? If you were to give a testimony to God, listen, I have conducted myself. I'm in the world, God, but I have conducted myself like you, like will be pleasing to you. You would give your, your seal of approval. You would give me your endorsement. At the end of the day, you would look at everything that I've done and you would be approving. That's what happens when there are no other gods before you. Listen, 2 Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. I'm telling you, idolatry is so cunning. Because it doesn't look like what we think about it looking like. When you think of idolatry as there's this big idol made out of wood or metal or something that's fashioned and you're bowing down to it. We think about a third world country and they're just doing that. No, 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 no. Listen, idols of the heart. Idols of the heart are way more subtle, but equally, if not more powerful. Because if it captures your heart, it's got all that it needs. It doesn't have to have your pocketbook. It doesn't have to have your children. 
Don't have to have any other possession. If it's got your heart, it has enough. Number three, and th- this is this is going to be like the more, like, yeah. I will worship what I love the most. And what I love the most is what I'll worship. That's not a slick statement that I tried to craft on my own. That's a restatement of Matthew 6, verse 24. I will worship what I love the most. And what I love the most is what I'm going to worship. What are you worshiping this morning? Let me ask you this. What would someone else say you worship? What would the testimony of your life say you worship? Because can I, can I just give you something? It's seen. It'll be evidenced. It, it, you can tell what people worship and what they don't. You can drive by, you can, sometimes you can almost drive by someone's yard and see what they worship. Not making careless judgment stuff. I'm not talking about that. You look at their, just look at their lifestyle. You can tell. One of my dear friends, um, the last years of his life, he was my colleague in ministry, but for nearly 20 years, he was a mentor. His name was Robert West. Robert West was a missionary. And uh, he was a member of the church that I grew up in. As a matter of fact, our church uh, ordained him, laid hands on him, sent he and his family to the Ivory Coast, West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire. He was, um, uh, in technical term, he was what you call the maintenance missionary. He was a guy that, that worked on equipment and stuff that all of our other missionaries used to, you know, run lights and, and the chapels. And he just, he was just the maintenance guy. He was there serving the Lord, witnessing to, to those in, in the area of, of, uh, of Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, but, but, you know, he was just, he was, you know, the, the tinker kind of guy. He, that's just what he did. He kept everything running smoothly. Cars and motorcycles, just did all that kind of stuff. He was a mechanic. Well... Uh, it was really cool. I grew up the way I grew up. When you had a missionary come, you always wanted to come and hear the stories. That's all you wanted. You want to see the stuff, right? That he that he brought back with him. You want to hear about the culture. What kind of weird food did you eat? You know, you, you were kind of locked onto that, right? Because there's something interesting about it. It really was. And he would do that. He would come. He and his wife, and they had a daughter, and they would come home on furlough for about a year at a time, and then they'd go back for another four years or so, and then come back on furlough. And it was it was that way for like twenty years. But towards towards the end of his time, uh, I'd grown up, and and uh, I was answered a call to ministry, and he started pouring his life into me. As a matter of fact, I didn't really catch this, but every time he was home on furlough, I don't know, maybe it's just a God thing. He was pouring himself into me. I mean, he was just pouring ministry and love. And, and men, can I just, can I just say this? Um, and, and ladies too, grown-ups. Um, pour your faith into the lives of those younger than you. Find somebody. Spend some time with them. 
Call him on the phone. Write him a letter. Find him here in the hallways here at church. Pull him aside. Have a conversation with him. Invite him for a Pepsi. Do something. But pour yourself. Listen, I believe had it not been for those key people in my life, I would have still, I was in a life of rebellion when God called me. God called me literally out of just a, a, a life out of rebellion. Okay? And, and all that that brought with it. Okay? But if it were not for him and having that voice in my life, who knows where I'd be today? He taught me one day to something that they did in, in, in West Africa where he was a missionary. When an African would come to the Lord, there, there was a certain thing that they did. It was called burning the fetishes. You see, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, there was the religion, dominant religion there was called animism. Animism. Now, it's kind of hard to describe um, animism, so I'm going to try to illustrate it for you as best as I can. This right here is a music stand. This music stand is made out of, what, metal? Uh, rubber thingies here, and the knobs are plastic, and, and what have you. To all of us, this is a music stand. Does this music stand influence you at all? It's just a music stand, right? What if this music stand talked? That would be totally weird, right? What if this music stand commanded you to do stuff? That's animism. The, the word itself, animism, animate, it, it, it means that that the demonic powers of Satan and his imps and demons can hold sway over inanimate objects, but to that person who is, who is captivated by that, it's a fetish. And it becomes an idol to them. And it will come alive. Could you imagine being so darkened by Satan that an inanimate object not only comes to life, but commands you of how to live it? And so that, 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 uh, that African, when he comes to the Lord, one of the things that they did, they said, you're going to have to, when you turn your life over to, to, to Jesus and you're worshiping God alone, something's got to happen to these fetishes. To show that they hold no more sway over your life, you're going to have to burn them. Now that's a big deal when it means that by burning your fetishes, you may lose favor with the rest of your community and village and even family. But salvation is no joking matter. And allegiance to the Lord, God alone, is something you don't play with. And our missionaries learn, if we don't get them to make that radical decision right then and there, they will turn from the Lord eventually. So are you going to burn your fetishes and show that you're ready to follow God alone? They would. They would. They would just gather them all together and lay them down and make a pile of them and set fire to it. If I were to ask you to burn your fetishes this morning to, to, to get rid of those other things in your life that you'd be... I wonder what you would put on this pile right here. What are the things that are competing with your worship of God?
Well, here's what happened. After a while, they started learning that, that in that culture, they didn't really mind doing that so much. I mean, it was a big deal, but there was another problem. The fetish may have been burned, but it still had sway right here in their heart. And so our, our missionaries working in, in Ivory Coast, in West Africa, they developed another technique that is still used today, and it's, and it's working. They don't ask them to burn their fetishes anymore. They say, what, what is it? What's that God in your life? And they'll, you know, here it is. You want to prove to me? You want to show to the Lord that you love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Leave it right there and walk away. And leave it. Just leave it. If there's no more power bound in that thing, leave it. Do you realize the amount of faith that it requires to leave something that you could see every single day. That even the great Satan himself, in trying to deceive these new converts, still doesn't have the power. Why? Because of their faith. Where does obedience to the first command start? Same place. Your faith. Where is your faith? Do you trust in your wisdom? Do you trust in your homegrown culture? Do you trust in your friends? Do you trust in your job? Do you trust in your paycheck? What is it that you really have your faith in? As I said earlier, your life will demonstrate it. Your life proves where your heart is. Bible says, command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And just as a reminder in that preceding verse, just so you'll know of how special I am, the Lord says, I'm the God that gave you true freedom. I am the God that has rescued you out of Egypt, out of sin, out of slavery. I am the God who no other God can compete with because I can give you everything your heart's desire if your heart is centered on me. So where is your heart this morning? Where is your faith? What are your fetishes? What are those things that you've been giving allegiance to that doesn't deserve any more worship? Would you be willing to come and lay them down this morning and walk away? And leave them be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. Uh, command number one seems to be kind of like a, a big tall order. Lord, you're, you're asking me to do some things. that, but God, I don't, I don't believe you have ever asked us to do anything that you've not given us the strength. And Lord, your word says in Philippians chapter 4... I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And Father, I I'm not going to ask our congregation to do anything that the Word of God has not declared that we uh, wouldn't have the power for. We do. By faith, 
we can turn from all of those competing desires. By faith, we can turn away from the gods that we are serving, the little g, gods. And put you first and foremost, back into our hearts, back into our lives. And let that be represented by our worship, our speech, our parenting, the way we treat our spouses, our worship and love for the church. So God, in as much as this is an invitation, this is almost just a challenge. God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with the truth that we have heard this morning? Father, I pray that we would be like the wise man. Your word says, you rebuke the wise man, he'll become even wiser still. You rebuke the fool, the scoffer. They just turn away and ignore it. So, Father, I pray that in this invitation, that there's people already here praying. The remainder of us will respond appropriately to your leading this morning. Your will be done. In Jesus' name.